to another episode of Public Problems. Um, today, once again, I'm with a group of Bush School students. I spent a portion of their semester addressing a policy issue or a public problem that they identified. And uh, today we're going to talk about mass shootings in America and give some context as to why and some different strategies for um, um, mitigating the level of violence. Um, but before we get started, I'd like to give the group an opportunity to introduce themselves. You're going to hear from five other voices other than my own, and um, that way you can put a name with the voice. So if you would, please introduce yourselves. I'm Allison Hall. I am Damon Moosehead. I'm Kimberly Winarski. Erica Koniger. I'm Blake Sawyer. Excellent. Um, so let me begin first by saying thank you, as I did before we started recording, um, for tackling this topic. Uh, this, isn't, uh, this is a very politically charged one, as you all know. I'm sure you spent your time researching it. Um, and so I think it's hard. It's one that's hard for people to get quality information on because they often sort of retreat to their own kind of tribal camps on this one. So I applaud you for tackling this one. And let's see uh, how good of a job we can do of conveying all the relevant variables and pieces of information to everyone this uh, this morning. So you talk about mass uh, mass shootings in the U.S. And I think maybe. What would be, well, before we go there, you could have picked anything. What was the reason for, as a group, you deciding to take on mass shootings? I think we all, of course, have reasons to care about it with how prevalent it is in U.S. society, but we each had personal reasons, too. Um, for example, I was a preschool teacher, a daycare teacher. My mom's a kindergarten teacher in a public school, and we're trained over and over how to deal with these active shooter situations. And hoping that we don't have to be trained for this. Like, why Why is this a reality in our society? So, you know, always having that concern in your mind of how can we protect our children and why is this such a problem? For me, that was a big reason why I wanted to tackle it. For me, I think uh, we sort of have similar situations in Pakistan also. And uh, just as Alison mentioned, uh, I think if you look into the research material, you'll come to realize that uh, some of the deadliest mass shooting incidents, uh, one of them actually existed in Pakistan. Uh, which is ranked at number four. So uh, even for me, it was one of uh, one of an important issue to discuss. And uh, at least back in Pakistan, people sort of have gotten immune to the fact that it's not a big deal, and that is something that bothers me personally. I'm from Orlando, Florida, mm, and yeah. have friends that uh, went to Parkland or went to the uh, high school there, and so yeah. So just pretty close to home for you. Yeah. yeah. And I was in law enforcement before, so it was kind of close to me as well. Um, and then a lot of people don't know there was a uh, school shooting in DeKalb uh, right outside of Atlanta, Georgia. In mm -hmm. 2013, that was actually averted um, by the police department that I'd worked for. Um, nice. So it was kind of a bigger take for me. At the same time, I believe that we chose this topic late October. And just since October, there have been two mass shootings uh, that have hit the news, um, where one was in Thousand Oaks, California, 13 were killed, 12 were injured, and the other one was the uh, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania synagogue shooting where 11 were killed and 6 were injured, and that was on October 27th, and I think we picked this like on October 15th, so... It remains just, timely. Yeah. yeah, and it just keeps going, so... So, <clears throat> how... I guess before we jump into it, I'd like to know two things um, from the group to the degree to which your research covered it. And the first is, it feels like that this is becoming more prevalent in the U.S. And I think sometimes it's hard to tell for people if it's just increased media coverage of an issue or if it's actually increasing. So the first question I have for the group is, is it becoming, are these becoming more prevalent? Um, and as part of that Tell me what you mean by mass shootings, because I know there's some people talk about what the what the number of people being shot uh, is for it to count as a mass shooting. And then um, we're talking about how it's also prevalent in Pakistan. But I want to I'm curious as to how um, is is the U.S. the place that's most prevalent for mass shootings and then how it compares to a couple of other countries that also have some mass shootings. Is it way off the map? Is it sort of in line? What other countries is it in line with? Just to give people a little bit of context, because I'm not that sure that's something everyone has. So let's start with, is this getting worse? And how do you define mass shooting? So it is getting worse. Um, they were showing that it's like something that the 
they're becoming more and more frequent and they've been adding up um, as the years go on. We've started to see it like it started in the 1930s, but since the 1960s, it's really started to take off. And then it's something within like the past year, the past 10 years, it's like doubled or something. So the frequency is just going like off the charts, really. And then um, how many are we look? How many are we looking at just out of curiosity? Uh, so one of the figures that we had found was uh, out of the 12, and we had to narrow it down because there is so many, uh, the 12 top mass shootings in the United States, eight have occurred since the year 2000, and five of the top 12 have occurred in the last three years. Okay. So I had to even go in and kind of <coughs> select down because uh, the Thousand Oak shootings actually tied for the top 12 with 13 killed. So you're looking at the top 12, at least 13 have been killed just to be in that category, um, all the way up to the most recent one, or the largest one in Las Vegas. So the severity of them definitely seems to be going up. Yeah, and then as far as definitions <clears throat> go, um, there is no universally like accepted definition, unfortunately, um, but we went with the FBI definition that one seemed to be popping up more. It was the closest one we could get to a universally accepted definition. And it includes four people who've been shot um, at an incident. And I can't. So it's excluding. Yeah, it excludes the yeah. gunmen or gunmen mm -hmm. shooters. Yeah. Um, so four victims four that victims have been shot. That have, yes. And then, like, some definitions go down to three, but that includes if, like, the shooter has been killed. But there's, like, definitely like, variances in, like, if he, if they killed themselves versus, like, if the police shot them. So it's a very, like, interesting thing that could be a paper in and of itself mm -hmm. on the definition of a mass shooting. And then some definitions were only if, if it was the intent uh, to do that and let's say there's a crowd and he tried to shoot in and only wounded two But the intent was to kill more and was stopped. It goes down as a mass shooting. So uh, But again, we stuck with the FBI the four and excluding the shooters and um, You mentioned you use the pronoun he there, which I will probably come up again But it's also true that most of these are men, right? I mean, is it the overwhelming majority of the shootings are yes. men? Is that correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, how does this? How does the U.S. compare on these numbers to other countries? Well, if we talk about U.S. to the other countries, uh, certainly U.S. sort of uh, has more of these cases, and those cases have been popping up more uh, since the 2000s. Uh, if you compare it with, uh, let's say, Pakistan, uh, because there is no universal definition over there, we don't have any definition with four victims being killed over there. Uh, many of the uh, issues that have sort of pop up over there are not classified as mass shooting. But uh, if you look into the data, you will realize that uh, some of the biggest mass shooting incidents uh, have occurred uh, in Pakistan. I think three of them are actually in Pakistan. So uh, that's how it is over there. Yeah, but we own the most guns. Like yeah. civilian-owned guns, we handily own that. It's something like... We own almost fifty percent of all civilian-owned guns in the country. We're just or in the world, yes. so we're just shy of that. And then I think India. India is the second one. And uh, what's actually interesting is, uh, and what uh, we will be talking about is, uh, most of the mass shooting incidents that occur in US are linked to gun ownership and domestic violence, uh, whereas uh, at least in India and in Pakistan, most of those are linked with religious uh, religion fanatism and all those kind of stuff. Interesting. So the contributing variables are different. are different. All right. So we talked a little bit about um, this becoming more prevalent, but what's kind of the, in your report, you lay out a history of mass shootings in the U.S. So what are some important um, points over time that you identified as, as useful for putting this in context? So I think something that we wanted to highlight is that, like, guns have always played a part in America. Like, they've been around since the founding. Um, but we didn't actually start to see mass shootings until the 1930s. Um, and that's around a little bit after, like, the industrialization in which, like, guns became accessible to everyone. So before, like, the industrialization and the manufacturing of guns, uh, it was really just about, like, hunting and protecting, like, your house on the frontier. And then after that, um, you saw the rise of, like, guns, like, as 
gun collecting as a hobby, gun collecting, like, city people would, like, go out and do hunting for fun and shooting clubs arose. Um, and then in the 1930s, mass shootings became a thing, but they were often focused on, like, families. Uh, and then in the 1960s, it sort of rolled over and the target became much more about, like, political or, like, just being angry and sort of going out and targeting people in the public. And then as the, like, mass shootings became more prevalent in the 1960s and going on forward, um, you now see, like, the tie-in to, gu like, having a gun and using it as, like, a safety thing. And so that's how you come to, like, where we are now, where so many people, like, don't want to necessarily give up their guns because it's seen as, like, a self-protection thing mm -hmm. against this rise of, like, mass shootings. It was kind of come... <clears throat> so it started with more utility, more kind of being on the frontier, and then it becomes a bit of a hobby um, and increasing gun ownership. And then you have instances of kind of private displays of mass shootings towards like one's family or those close to them. And then over time it becomes more of a public act. Um, yeah. and then as part of a response to that, uh, and the amount of gun ownership, there's this new component that is, uh, increasing gun ownership, which is part of the solution should be because guns are so common. Part of the solution is having your own gun as part of protection. Yeah. Sort of the layout of it. So they saw, like, in 2015, they saw that, like, 60-something percent of gun owners now own a gun for self-protection, and actually that number is even higher in, like, the South, um, whereas, like, in the past it's always been for, like, sporting or hunting, and that was, like, most recently the biggest flip was for the self-protection when we took that in, like, the early 2000s. <clears throat> I don't know if anyone else grew up in one of these areas. So I grew up with guns. I grew up hunting. Um, and, you know, I can remember growing up and that was, you know, even as late as the early 90s, at least in my community, which was a, a, a rural southern community, much of it was still about hunting and some basic collection of like um, hunting uh, rifles. And then over time, you know, people that I knew and people that my family knew and people in my family, it sort of shifted. Uh, it and it, it almost mirrors in like a microcosm of what you say. I mean, I can remember it going from we, you know, had a couple of guns that were like the deer hunting guns and um, and for squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting. And then about the early 2000s, late 90s, I just noticed people started collecting like assault weapons as like part of their collection, uh, like group of guns. Um, and then after that, it has shifted within at least the people that I knew from that, uh, from my home to uh, this conversation about protection and then a, a, an acquiring of a lot of different types of handguns that you keep on you as a person. <clears throat> now, some of that could just be my own awareness just as I grow older, but it does seem, at least within this particular community, um, I watched it kind of follow that trend from the, you know, again, the early 90s till now, where it very much is, for example, and there was a, a nice special in, in vice of this, but where, you know, uh, a, a nice special, some of, this, some of the language I'm not sure how to use here, but, <laughs> um, you know, talking about domestic violence, which is going to be a piece of this, and that in lots of communities, women have taken to uh, gun ownership and gun training courses as a way to defend themselves against domestic abuse, which then is causing other types of problems because then when they do use the gun for self-defense, it's not always seen as self-defense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess the, the place to start next is just with, your, with the issues that you identify. And I think the one that's already been alluded to or mentioned explicitly is just the sheer amount of gun ownership in the U.S. So what all did you find um, in the research about the amount of guns in the U.S., how that's changed over time, and the ways that this might be contributing to the number of mass shootings? Uh, with regard to the gun ownership, uh, as we uh, talked about, uh, apparently the estimated figure is basically 650 million guns worldwide, and uh, U.S. tend to own roughly 48% of the gun ownership. Uh, India is basically second to uh, the US with uh, I think 48 million. So there's a substantial gap between uh, gun ownership. And uh, a lot of the material that we sort of uh, 
found sort of relates gun ownership control uh, to mass shooting incidents over there. And uh, just as uh, just as uh, Alison actually said, um, Erica, sorry, actually said that uh, uh, over time period, the intent of owning a gun ownership sort of has changed in, in, in the U.S. from being a hobby or for owning it for shooting purposes uh, to sort of uh, having it for uh, uh, for protection purposes. So uh, our research sort of shows that they have gun ownership has a strong correlation with uh, mass shooting incidents in, in the U.S. I think is maybe politicized, but also a pretty straightforward claim, right? I mean, if you have a ton of guns, whether that's a good or bad thing in and of itself in a society, we could talk about, um, and we could talk about, you know, some of the legal protections for gun ownership, but it's not, it's not surprising that a society that has a lot of guns, that some percentage of those people then choose to use them for violent purposes. Whereas if a lot fewer people had guns, they just, the, the total amount of people that have access to them is different. So you might imagine that there are less of them. Mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be a super controversial claim, but it is one I think that does become controversial, right? And I think that's what, so we looked at a couple of different studies for that section. And I think that's what the studies were driving at is like, you know, in the United States, often when it happens, you hear like, oh, it's our lack of healthcare and like mental yeah. health issues. And so I think these studies were trying to like control for a bunch of different variables. They did control for mental health issues, access to healthcare, um, like different backgrounds. And they just found like our sheer quantity of guns is like part of that reason. And like, I think ultimately what we tried to do with a bunch of our variables is go towards things that weren't necessarily always discussed, Mm -hmm. like in the mainstream media after Mm -hmm. a violent act. And so we tried to look at like different things that are just as important in these issues. And so I think the sheer amount of guns isn't talked about because it just seems so obvious, but like we had these studies and they're like, it's an issue. And even in a cross-country comparison, uh, there have been some researches that sort of conclude that countries with tighter gun controls tend to have lesser incidence of mass shooting, uh, which is apparently not the case, at least in the U.S. That's that's our finding, though there have been some steps being taken in the U.S., but uh, that's how uh, the, uh, the findings have been. So definitely gun control, uh, ownership, do have a strong uh, link to uh, mass shooting incidents. Just a side note to what Erica said about mental illness. Um, that was something we thought we would actually be talking more about because it is so much in the media as something that's correlated. But we've really found <clears throat> through studies that mental illness was really a weak correlation between gun violence and mass shooters. So it really wasn't worthy of our time. And also we realized if we focus so much on that, it honestly um, kind of propagates a negative stigma toward people with mental illness ultimately because most people with mental illness don't become violent. Um, that's the statistic. And um, there's a lot of people, well, there's several, you know, case studies we have of people who were mass shooters who either got some um, mental health treatment or didn't or really weren't diagnosable for any sort of mental illness. It was just the situation they were in life and other risk factors. And so, again, as Erica said for our paper, we try to focus on those things we find the strongest correlation, one of them being gun ownership, um, along with other social issues. So I think ultimately what we'll get at through the paper is seeing like this two-pronged issue of we have risk factors for violence, and it just so happens that in America, the most available weapon for violence is guns. Yeah. And so that that's really kind of just um, as a framework for how we discuss our paper. Yeah, the, the mental illness one, while, um, to be clear, uh, the healthcare system around mental health needs its own reforms, um, it has always felt a little bit like a, like a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same way when we talk about kind of... Uh, terrorism and uh, jihad, for example, right? People often want to frame that as just these, you know, crazy mentally ill people, which just, when you look further at the people who choose to participate in jihad and participate in terrorism, it's really hard to make the case that they're crazy. Uh, They're often following very rational kind of goals of something they're trying to accomplish. Um, And with mass shootings, um, it it seemed that while... that's probably related to some mental states like anxiety and fear and anger, uh, kind of writing it off as people who are extremely uh, mentally health challenged isn't really addressing what's going on. 
Yes, sir. I was just going to add to that because it's a very slippery slope when you start talking about mental illness because are we talking about anxiety again? Are we talking about PTSD? Mm -hmm. um, and then it, then it starts to make those people that may come forward to get help be reluctant to do so because maybe they've got PTSD, but if they're diagnosed with PTSD, next thing you know, they can't even go hunting with their, with their son mm -hmm. uh, or even own a gun. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, again, it's just a really slippery slope of what is the mental illness then and where does it stop that you can't own a gun if you've been to a mental health clinic or mm -hmm. uh, a lot yeah. of things that can go wrong. Which is another problem with tying it to mental right. health, right? It hushes right. people who actually do need mental health but also might enjoy their guns who are not, who are not likely to be violent. Right. Um, so the next thing you <clears throat> talk about, which until... I don't know, the last year or so, I was unaware, <clears throat> excuse me, of the role this of the correlation here. And I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of this is disturbing, but I think this is one that's also really disturbing, which is the relationship with domestic violence. Um, and could in a whole report on the prevalence of, of domestic violence as well, which is maybe something you, you touch on. Um, but what is the what is the relationship here between domestic violence um, and, uh, and mass shooters or mass shootings. <clears throat> Absolutely. So often domestic violence and mass shootings overlap with, with going with our definition of you know, former people being shot. Um, in 2009 to 2015, 57% 57, 57 of mass shootings um, included a spouse, former spouse, or other family members among their victims. And those that weren't actually domestic violence crimes, 54% um, of mass shootings between 2009 and 2016, the perpetrator of that... Um, crime had a history of domestic violence. So there's a few examples we give um, in recent years. Um, the shooter in Sutherland Springs, Texas, Devin Kelly, um, you know, he killed 26 people there. Five years prior, he had assaulted his wife and stepson. Another incident um, was Robert Deere Jr., um, who killed three people at a Colorado Springs Planned Parenthood clinic in 2015. He had a history of beating his wife. And then there's another example, Omar Mateen, um, who's responsible for the shooting in Orlando, Florida, um, at the Pulse nightclub, um, killing 49 people. He had um, had a history of beating his wife as well. So, And there's other stories of this, too, that stand out. Um, and really the, the main um, takeaway from this is that those with the history of domestic violence really have um, really penchant to, um, like, just participate in other forms of violence and take it from uh, a private violence to more public violence. Um, so that, that's the main correlation that we see. Um, we also, um, I mean, that, that's really the main issue, and there's lots of other patterns that um, bring about social scientists um, kind of hypothesize that, you know, having this history of violence neutralizes these barriers and there's other, you know, ideas that this is kind of rooted in um, gender norms and and things of that nature. So I think the term that you that's used is, you know, toxic masculinity mm -hmm. in the ways that based on some cultural notions about what it means to be masculine is can be related with uh, triggering violent tendencies. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Anything else about um, domestic violence that's, that Just we should touch on? Just to add one more thing, uh, for countries where uh, there's, there are mass uh, certain cases of uh, jihad and uh, religious fanaticism, uh, if you sort of look into the people who are recruited in these uh, groups are usually the ones who actually have faced domestic violence uh, in their families. And that sort of does sort of explain why domestic violence do relate to uh, religious fanaticism that eventually sort of leads to uh, mass shooting incidents. Yeah, so the idea that the shooters might not only be perpetrators of domestic violence, but could also be victims yeah. of domestic violence in their own childhoods. And another thing to note really quick as far as a real policy issue, in our laws we have um, what's called the boyfriend loophole. So we already, in America, we prohibit people who have a history of domestic violence or assault, if they're convicted of that, toward their spouse or toward their children, um, they're not allowed to legally gain access to guns. However, if an individual has been charged with a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence toward a girlfriend or someone that's not like legally their child, someone that's just been living with them, they can still have access to a gun. So even though they have had the same crime, 
um, they can still attain a gun. And that actually has resulted in homicides and um, potentially could, if, if we close that boyfriend loophole, so to speak, um, we could prevent further gun violence in the home and in public as well. Oh, it was the criteria is like spouse, child, or cohabitant if you, there's a child involved. Mm-hmm. So, but if you like have a girlfriend who has another kid and you're not living with them, but you're like violent towards the child, it doesn't matter also if it like girlfriend or boyfriend, um, and they're not living with you, it's again, you can be violent. There's not going to be any repercussion to you. Mm-hmm. And we also found um, from the Every Town for Gun Safety data that 25% of mass shootings from 20, 2009 to 2014, the shooter killed a current or former partner they never married or had a child with. So supposedly if those people didn't have access to a gun with a history of violence, you know, potentially we could have saved lives in that incidence. 25%, huh? Mm-hmm. All right, let's keep on pushing through. The next one is officer time response. And uh, it was interesting to hear about the, uh, uh, or be reminded of the example in DeKalb where um, uh, maybe there was better officer time response to help uh, thwart a shooting. So let's talk about why this is a challenge and how it plays out. So for the incident that happened in DeKalb, they had a school resource officer that was there. Um, and the gentleman who was the perpetrator, it was a single perpetrator, came into the main office and had told the office staff to call the media and call the police and that he wanted to have a confrontation with the police and then started shooting in the air. Uh, immediately, that's when the officers that were there responded uh, and then they actually exchanged gunfire uh, and then he kind of barricaded himself with some people in the office, uh, I believe at one point moving to the library and then uh, it was actually credited to one of the teachers that actually talked him down mm-hmm. and was saying like, hey, why are you doing this? We've all got problems. And uh, eventually it was ended without uh, anyone being injured, uh, which is very fortunate because yeah. he was right on the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe he had two assault rifles and a pistol. Uh, so it was, the potential was there to mm-hmm. become another one of the statistics that we've talked about. Um, but as far as other things go for officer response time, um, the Department of Homeland Security reported that the average response time of officers to an active shooter incident was 12.5 minutes, um, while, uh, or excuse me, the average active shooter incident is 12.5 minutes, while the average response time by law enforcement is 18.5. So there's a big gap there, uh, and a lot of people are like, oh, we'll just call SWAT or let's have SWAT ready. Um, SWAT's average response time uh, across the nation is 50 minutes. Uh, so a huge gap between, mm-hmm. between 12.5, 18, and then 50 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so closing that gap uh, is very important. Also, 63% of act, uh, active shooter incidents were ended by a single officer's response, um, and 30% were ended by two officers or less. So bringing the figure to 93% were stopped by two or less officers. And I don't know how familiar you are or the audience is with the Columbine shooting in 1999. That's really where a lot of this uh, kind of started an uptick. Mm -hmm. But during that incident, the officers were not prepared uh, to engage that level of violence and what they had prepared for those officers, um, having uh, advanced weaponry, uh, making pipe bombs, things like that. And the... Uh, officers that were there had pistols uh, and that was it. So a lot of it comes down to how are we going to train officers to respond to this uh, and then again cutting down that response time for saving lives. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty clear example where you want to get the quickest most effective response as possible from law enforcement. Um, <clears throat> the final thing you have listed in your report is one of your major categories is media response, which I know comes under uh, under scrutiny uh, when covering mass shootings, in part, as we talked about earlier, um, for refusing to deal with maybe some of the real issues, um, but in part because of how they cover the actual shootings. So tell me what you identified as the role the media is playing in um, contributing to mass shootings. Uh, so again, media was actually a very strong correlation Uh, also with gun ownership, Um, because again, right around that time was where everybody has access, 1999 is the time I'm referring to, where everybody started to have access to cable television or, and then all the way up into today, we can get 
Twitter feed or just news immediately. Um, and there was several studies that had been conducted on how the media reported mass shootings um, and that it had found that it bolstered at-risk individuals who were going to commit those uh, acts or who were already uh, you know, thinking of doing those, it bolstered them to do so. And that there was uh, a really interesting ABC News investigation that revealed uh, out of 17 school shooters that had been interviewed and 36 uh, potential school shooters, ones that had been averted but had uh, pretty much a, a manifesto of what they were going to do, had said that it was, or had directly cited the Columbine shooting incident as something that had, you know, actually made them do it or they wanted to be just like the two shooters from Columbine and have that uh, media attention and the, the, you know, the attention on them. Uh, so I just thought that was really uh, a strong correlation between how in 1999, that's when that shooting went down. A lot of attention was paid to that shooting. And then from there, we've seen the mass shootings only go up and the numbers killed during each incident only start to go up as well. Are there things specifically about how the media covers the shootings um, that are noted as playing a role um, in increasing the? I know, I know one of the things that people talk about is uh, you know putting the person's face and name everywhere in a way that makes it seem easy to glorify them. Um, was there anything that you come across specifically about the media's role, other than just? broadly covering it or the time dedicated to it. Is there anything about the type of coverage that you noticed as part of uh, these conversations or was it not really delineated in the, in the literature? It was just how they, they continue to say the names of the individuals, how they, how they harp on the names. We all know, uh, or I would venture to say that everyone knows the name of an active shooter, but at the same time, can you name any of the people that ended the active shooter incident or can you name any of the victims, the heroes, of those incidents. Mm -hmm. And like right now, even, you know, myself, while I was going through, I can probably name six or seven of the shooters and I still can't name any of the, the heroes or mm -hmm. the victims. Um, so just that in and of itself shows how much the news media really harps on this is the shooter. Here's the shooter. Here's his picture. Here's his background. And it does, it glorifies them. And again, I, I have a feeling as well that it bolsters those individuals that are at risk. Um, which is exactly why there's two campaigns out there right now to stop that. Um, and it's the Don't Name Them campaign and the No Notoriety campaign. And their main goal is to prevent law enforcement, uh, the media, any kind of uh, gathering that's going to gain attention, not to mention the shooters, uh, not to put the attention on them, but to put the attention on the victims and the heroes. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really powerful. Yeah, both those campaigns focus more. I think, um, not the no notoriety. Right? They don't name them? Yeah, they don't yeah. name them one. Um, specifically focuses on like ethical like journalism and sort of like what media can do for that and sort of they like have recommendations on like what pictures to publish, you know, showing like the victims rather than like the mug shots and stuff. And then pressuring to have more of like not like glorifying it like don't use like sensational headlines or something um so again it just like it provides them recommendation and then the no, no notoriety campaign is a little bit more encompassing you know it tells law enforcement you know it asks them to not um use the name it gives tools for citizens to just like you know they're like here like here's a letter template you know like mail it to you know, a media company, your local newspaper, asking them to, like, reform their um, coverage of these incidences. So there's, like, there's no bite to it, but it's still... Still pressures in that direction. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's enough pressures where I've heard about it, right? People that follow along a little bit, you hear of the conversations of trying to change how this is covered. Um, so what... What, what can be done? Let's start up with excessive gun ownership. Um, what are the different tools or strategies, you know, given the um, just sheer amount of guns in the U.S. that allow us to kind of deal with this? Okay, so we kind of talked more about gun control with mm -hmm. our solutions to that. Mm -hmm. um, and that was mainly my section, so I tried to walk the line a little bit. 
Um, being from Florida, kind of a swing state. Um, I, I like. So I tried to avoid. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I tried to avoid like issues that I didn't think we would all agree on. Maybe. Okay. Um, but consensus about, is good. Um, I talked a little bit about bump stocks, and so that's something that's been um, in the news. It was in the news after the Las Vegas shooting because it was a part of it, but it also in the news recently because I believe they were banned in some capacity at the federal level. Um, or they were talked about, and then I believe just last week that they were there was some some sort of ban that went into place. Um, but something about those. Okay, let me. I know. First off, the the one thing for background checks for gun shows and private sales, um, we can talk about that one. Federal database to track gun sales, ban on uh, assault-style weapons. Those three were unanimous when the Pew Research Center uh, pretty much conducted a poll and said, would Democrats and Republicans both be for those or reform on those laws? Um, and ironically, again, they were even, both Democrats and Republicans were for uh, laws preventing mentally ill from buying guns. So when all four of those were presented, I think 88% of Democrats and 79% of Republicans said that they were for background checks for gun shows and private uh, sales to that loophole to be cut. 79% uh, of Democrats and 81% of Republicans were for uh, laws preventing mentally ill uh, from having guns. 85% of Democrats and 55% of Republicans uh, were for a federal database to track guns, almost uh, like cars and mm -hmm. things like that. And then ban on assault-style weapons, 70% of Democrats, and the only one that was at 48%, that wasn't over 50% for Republicans, uh, was the ban on assault-style weapons. So with that you know, Pew Research study done, it shows that both Democrats and Republicans are willing to do that. The voters are willing to do that. But this kind of lies on... Congress and the actual lawmakers to push something through, which it always seems that it comes down to, well, the people don't want it. Well, I guess, I guess, I guess they need to see this study and then it's kind of like, what do you say about this? Yeah. And, then, and it's not, this isn't even like a new thing in the history. Um, I believe it was in the eighties. So we've had a history of like sort of tightening gun, um, gun laws and then there have been a couple of different points throughout history more recently where it's just been loosened up and um in the 80s congress passed a ban on like a national uh list of firearm owners and so not against what the people wanted it but again lobbying came into that yeah. and played a huge role so Understanding too that part of this is also adequate, not enough adequate resources put towards the background mechanisms that we already have in place. That there's a pretty serious wait time for background checks, that mm -hmm. these lists are not maintained and updated in a timely manner like they're supposed to be. So, even over and above, in conjunction with the fact that a lot of these uh, background check style policy reforms. Um, and even uh, banning assault weapons have broad majority support of citizens. Even the things in place uh, aren't enforced and implemented in the way that they, sh even things that are already uh, already a legal structure, administrative structure apparatus for dealing with these things just uh, perpetually seem to be underfunded and not well-maintained. So the reciprocity between states was also another thing that just didn't really click with me. I can drive anywhere in any state in the United States of America with my driver's license when I was in Georgia, when I was in North Carolina, Texas. But then the reciprocity with concealed weapons permits or even owning what, what requirement you have to have for owning a gun in each individual state. And again, I'm for states' rights, but it just seems a little bit weird that we have more regulation and everyone is on the same page about owning a vehicle but not owning a an assault rifle so it just kind of seemed a little little weird that we can't all come together and get on the same page about that part of the research um suggests or part of the research that we found uh suggested that in relation to gun violence so not mass shootings but gun violence um in general um, that states with, even if they had, you know, stronger gun laws, that if they were surrounded by states that had weaker gun laws, that they um, were at risk for more gun violence. And so that was an important thing. Mm -hmm. Although it doesn't relate directly um, 
similar, and I think it shows that something about your neighboring states really relates to it. Yeah, it seems like a, I mean, I think the car example is, and driver license is a really nice one, um, something that has the potential, you know, is a, is a vehicle, like literally a vehicle, but it's a, it can be used for transportation across across state lines, and it has the potential to cause harm to people who aren't in the car, right? Mm-hmm. And guns in that way are similar, right? You can have them, tell them for a variety of reason, reasons, to take them hunting for protection, but the gun has the potential to have uh, costs imposed upon people who don't own that gun. And in economics, we call that externalities, right? And so that's usually the reason for things like, you know, required car insurance or uh, having these type of stable laws across the across the country. And it, and it, and it seems like guns are a pretty um, clear case where we know there are some negative externalities with gun ownership where costs are imposed upon someone who doesn't, who is not the owner of the gun. And that it's relatively easy in the U S to take you and your gun across state lines. (laughs) And so it seems like a pretty reasonable place to then want to have some regulation or some legislation on how to manage those potential negative externalities across states, because it is an across state issue. Um, okay. Um, let's talk about the domestic violence piece. We'll come back to, to uh, the amount of guns maybe in the, at the end, but Domestic violence is one that, when I learned, um, it was, you know, very disturbing to me. Uh, just learning about the prevalence of domestic violence still is it's just hard to wrap your head around. But in the given, in particular, in the role it plays with mass shootings, what are some tools we have here? Yeah, it is really disturbing, and that's something. Before I jump into the solutions, I want to address that. Looking at domestic violence, like we said, we could have made a whole paper on this by itself, but. Um, it's important to address and find solutions for, not just for mass shootings, but for the everyday violence that we see in domestic violence situations. So it can lead to gun violence, but the reality is um, mass shootings and domestic violence are both tragic, but it's true that domestic violence against women is its really what's more prevalent in our society. It's just hidden. We don't really get a lot of media attention to it, um, but they're so connected and it's worth, it's definitely worth it to find solutions to both. So um First of all, our, we have some really tangible policy solutions, and then we have some more kind of um, social construct approaching solutions as well. So um, the first more tangible solutions we kind of alluded to before is closing the boyfriend loophole. And Erica, correct me, I did misspeak a little bit, so I wanted to clarify. Um, the law that we have in place says if someone has been charged with a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, they cannot attain a gun, basically if they have had a child with the victim, have been a current or former spouse, parent or guardian, um, or if they've lived or are living with that victim. But it doesn't apply to unmarried boyfriend or girlfriends. Um, And like we said, 25% of all mass shooters with a domestic violence history abused their non-married partner. Um, And so... We can just close, I mean, just closing this loophole and saying if you have been convicted of domestic violence misdemeanor, period, no matter what your relation is to this person, you shouldn't really have access to a gun. (laughs) Um, And that really could not only prevent mass shootings, but it could save a lot of people um, in their homes as well. So just closing that boyfriend loophole, um, to me, is a really common sense gun law. Mm -hmm. Um, Another potential false solution we saw... um, there's a lot of reasons women um, who are in domestic violence situations or other um, people in domestic violence situations um, don't report or don't get a restraining order is, um, you know, they don't really know the resources. They don't really know. They're afraid of retaliation for going to court to get a protective order that are known to actually protect them, get them away from um, their abusers. Um they have a mistrust of the justice system. So this goes on and on. So one of the solutions we found was training police officers across the board um, whenever they are, you know, called to domestic violence situation to make sure they know how to speak to these women, how to make them, you know, aware of the resources that are available to them. And some police officers are being trained in this, but I think the typical feeling is that their duties really should focus more on investigation, evidence seizure, just diffuse immediate violence. 
Whereas counseling a victim on what they can do next isn't really something that's emphasized. So just training the police, um, and really we feel, you know, studying in like a public administration course that this still falls under their scope. I mean, this is still about um, protecting public safety and um, to be able to inform people of, you know, what you can do, how you can get away from the situation, that there are people willing to help you, there are resources available, and you're not going to get in trouble, um, and making sure that the justice system follows through on those promises, um, that could save a lot of, um, you know, women, children, kids, other men in these situations, as well as, um, you know, prevent that gun violence from happening. So on the more kind of fluid um, social construct side of things, um, we did find that there's a lot of good research on, you know, different kinds of violence, why this happens, you know. Um, but one of the things we came across was it might be better to, instead of kind of dividing it up of this is youth violence, youth related violence, this is homicide, suicide, this is gun violence, kind of seeing what are the root causes behind all these. And a lot of um, social scientists say, like, there, as you mentioned before, there is a risk factor associated with toxic masculinity. And um, again, it's not the only thing, but it is something that is attributed to a lot of these, like, violence gender disparities that we see, not only in American culture, but... Um, there were surveys around the world um, that indicate violence and gender are linked, including in Germany, Finland, Sweden, Spain, that showed traditional attitudes toward women and children are correlated with violence. Um, we talked about, you know, Western cultural prescriptions of aggressiveness, male dominance, um, and even, I don't know if we mentioned it in the history, but that was part of the reason why guns themselves became more popular was it became the sign of masculinity in a lot of cases. Um, and that's, of course, not across the board. I have women in my family that own guns. Like, I know it's, that's not the only um, story going on here. Um, but just to kind of be able to approach violence in a more holistic way. Um, and there are, there are some programs out there that are kind of gender transformative programs, teaching young men and boys, like, what it is to really be a man. Um, mm -hmm. But those things are kind of not given a lot of the research that they need to be given. Um, and so those are just some of the, the solutions that um, we can look at, and it, it's definitely worth it. Um, and, and just one quick note, too, on the media response. I think um, not only just showing, um, showing these names of people who are shooters, um, but a lot of our leaders and... Um, Hence, who's an RA member, cited bureaucratic failings and mental illness as a reason for the Sutherland Spring shooting. He didn't say anything about, like, this person has a history of domestic violence. Um, and he left just one person. I mean, there was somebody who blamed, um, like, zombie video games, which we can kind of laugh at, but ultimately that's not funny. Like, you can't, in a leadership position or if you're in the media, you can't say that, oh, that person's just crazy, or oh, this happened, when there are systematic reasons in our society, in our culture, that lead someone to gun violence and to killing people. Um, and so, again, it's not the only thing, but if we just kind of turn a blind eye to all of the women, 50 American women being shot to death by intimate partners each month, if we turn a blind eye to all these things going on, um, we're doing a huge disservice, not just to, you know, preventing mass shootings, but to our society as a whole and protecting our people. So, yeah, yeah um, I mean, there's a lot there um, and a lot of important things. Um, uh, that, so, I, I mean, I agree. I, so you started with talking about um, the role of law enforcement as a kind of um, counselor or almost like caseworkers in terms of helping walk through uh, victims um, of domestic violence, their uh their access to services, their rights. Um, and I think there is, um, is something to um, that being a cultural issue within a lot of law enforcement departments, right? Where the focus, and this is a, uh, this is a function of a lot of things. Um, one is, is, is just the overall militarization of local law enforcement departments. Um, it's a trend that we've seen, but is the, is the culture within within those departments of it of it be needing to be one that is more of 
providing these resources um, to victims and um, less focus on other things, right? All organizations have a variety of priorities and a variety of strategies for achieving those those goals. And it, it seems like that local police departments or statewide uh, law enforcement organizations um, as part of their culture would benefit from having more of their training, more of their focus on this this other side of, of community engagement and public service. Not that police departments aren't doing any of this for sure, right? And you see clear examples um, throughout the country of this being done and being done to a larger degree, but even a more of a focus on this caretaker role as much as kind of the militarization role that we picture sometimes associated with this. Some of that's an image thing. Some of that's a, mm -hmm. a, a culture thing. And then, I mean, I think you're certainly right. I mean, I think there's, there's a good bit of evidence as my understanding about um, young men and um, issues of identity, um, both in the U.S., both in um, other cultures that we've mentioned about, you know, we, we see that men are usually the ones almost ex almost exclusively perpetuating mass shootings. And um, that's associate has to be associated something to do then with being a man in, within the culture, right? It's just too lopsided for it not to be something else. Um, and it's not, not happening in all societies, right? It's not all men everywhere in all societies. So there is something about what it means to be a man within some of these cultures. We have the issue here in the U.S. We have the issue in countries like Pakistan, countries like India, of what it means to be, um, of what it means to be a man and that playing a contributing role into those men um, engaging in, in, in violent crimes. And, and so, go ahead. Real quick, on that note, like, so much of the research would link back to, like, power and control. Mm -hmm. And so I think it goes into this idea that, like, men have the control and the violence is them reclaiming it when it's being lost by, like, a spouse or a partner leaving. So. And there's several different, like, social theories. That's one of them, reclamation. Some of them, there's just this kind of toxic expression, but that's a big one. And But all of them kind of go back to that idea of it. what it means to be a man is that control and having to assert that. And if you feel like you've lost that, you need to reassert that. Um, and unfortunately, in domestic violence situations and in mass shooting situations, we see a pattern of people doing that in a really horrible way. And, in a, and this isn't a, a topic of your report, but I think, interestingly, um, it's also, you know, um, the men are also killing themselves in record numbers in the U.S. Mm -hmm. as well, often with guns. Yeah. Um, it's often with opioids uh, as well. So, so it's not just, you know, it's not just uh, look at the horrible things these men are doing to other people, mm -hmm. right? Which is a piece of it that we shouldn't under understate. However, <laughs> the men are also so much suffering themselves mm -hmm. that it's not just hurting other people. I mean, these mass shooters often kill themselves yeah. as well. But even people, even those that are suffering that don't turn into mass shooters are often turning the guns on themselves, uh, which is its own type of epidemic in the U.S. Well, it's not even just, like, physical violence. It's also, like, emotional violence. There's, like, um, personally, like, I've talked to so many of my guy friends, and they'll be like, oh, I don't want to be an emotional, like, I don't do this, like, we don't express ourselves like this. And it's like, no, 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 like, it's fine, like, this is healthy, like, you need to have an outlet. I'm like, do you know how many times I sit with like my female friends over coffee and I'm like, oh, like the emotional baggage I've been feeling this week. Like it's just a healthy outlet, but like they've been socialized that that makes them weak, that they don't need to do that. And so it's not even just like physical violence. It's like the emotional side of it. And now there's like this turn within feminism, like the discussion of like how much of an emotional burden should women take on for men? And like, we shouldn't, they should be socialized to be able to handle it themselves is the conversation. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, I, um, my wife and my family will tell you I show my emotions. <laughs> so I, I'm not, I, and it wasn't because I was clever and thought it wasn't good to not show emotions. I just didn't have another choice. That's the way my uh, brain works. And I'm very social as well. One of the things that I've noticed too is just how isolated uh, men of middle, I mean, I guess I'm getting <laughs> Saying middle age is pretty tough for me to say out loud, but um, but men of like adulthood, <laughs> as they get close to middle age, 
it's also amazing to me how many men just don't have friends. Um, and even if they do have friends because of some of the, the notions around masculinity, it's not a safe spot for them to say, hey, I'm struggling with this and let me talk about it to you. Um, and so I think a big piece of this is, and, and you know, um, I also think we need to be careful to not blame the men, right? They're a function of their culture. Yeah. They're a function of the places in which they were, which they were raised in those institutions. Um, and uh, we are, we are in our DNA and our environment, right? Yeah. And these men are turning violent in, in, in not large part because of their own failings. I would strongly argue it's in the way that society defines masculinity and culture tells them how they're supposed to behave and the things they're supposed to be responsible for. So we're all, all of kind of culture, um, which makes it hard to tackle, but all of culture kind of plays a role in this as well. What, what else? What else can we do about uh, officer time response? Others, we've hit on some of the ones about the media, so let's revisit those just quickly. But do we have some suggestions about improving officer time response as well? Yeah, so what we were just talking about with domestic violence, my department did a really good job at addressing that, and I think the issue isn't, again, uh, all departments at certain departments. We had a domestic violence unit. Um, we were trained in domestic violence incidents. We had to have a supervisor there. We needed a domestic violence card. There was a lot of things that went into that. But we were a larger agency. We had more training. So a lot of the smaller agencies is where it's coming from. It's kind of a budget issue. So it's the same thing with active shooters. Um, you're going to have departments that don't issue uh, a long rifle or don't issue uh, body armor that can uh, stop anything except for handgun rounds. Um, and it was unfortunate, but we kind of saw that with the Thousand Oaks shooting that just happened in November. The officer that went in only had, uh, you know, regular body armor that would even stop handgun rounds um, and was still, uh, you know, mortally wounded. Um, I think that with the officer response time, it comes down to training and having everyone uh, kind of systematically taking the same exact training that shows how to respond to these incidents, when to respond. Um, that way, when law enforcement officers get on scene, they know exactly what to do, no matter if you're from the FBI and I'm from uh, you know local college station PD and we're here on campus, we know exactly what to do and we can work with each other. Um, that has kind of contributed to uh, the extended times for response when certain agencies get together and they've never trained before and they don't know what is your uh, policy on this or how do we, how do we need to go about this. So that could cut down a lot of the time just in and of itself. And then the other part would be again to allocate more funds towards uh, uh, some gear, um, not necessarily weapons, but uh, defensive gear uh, for officers because Again, I don't know how much you know about uh, body armor and what kind of rounds can be stopped uh, by certain body armors, but most law enforcement officers only have a vest on that can stop handgun rounds. So again, in those situations, it's more expensive to have what they call a bunker or another type of body armor that can be put in front of them that can stop rifle rounds, but it's more expensive. And so that's another thing that uh, I think could be implemented as, again, better equipment for those types of situations. So both financial resources and, you know, human capital resources, particularly in smaller departments that are most likely resource constrained, mm -hmm. um, really could go a long way in, in addressing these issues, which makes, I mean, it makes complete sense. The thing that I, you know, as we go through these projects, I was, I was, I guess, joking with this team about, how uplifting all of the uh, the projects is, and you go through one after another after another, right? Um, but a lot of this too, it just really does come down to resources, um, which is 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 tough, right? Um, because this is a really um, this is a piece in U.S. culture again that's a big function of our culture is being anti-tax, which in some ways is is good, right? It keeps government from spiraling, hopefully out of uh, out of size, although maybe we just spend deficit spending and run up a bunch of debt instead. But it's one tool to keep government at a reasonable size and to not have, you know, unneeded um, or unnecessary like uh, private market intervention that, that picks winners and losers and, and creates weird incentive structures. But things like improving our education system that is clearly investing in it seems like we maybe 
we'll have to pay more taxes for that, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing with funding our local police departments and making sure they have the resources they need not to just do the show up and arrest someone, but that they have the resources to have counselors as part of it, to have follow-up, to have the money for the data systems to do that. I mean, all of these things require money. Um, and so I think it's, you know, as part of these projects, I think it's important to tie some of this to our tax policies, right? We, we are very concerned with low taxes, which is important. And everyone wants to take home more of their paycheck within reason. I get it. So do I. But we need to have ways to thinking about funding, for example, the databases that we already have at the national level that aren't kept up because they're not properly funded, which that's blood on people's hands for not enforcing the things that are already in place, much less the agreement that we already have in place about why swaths of society agree that we should do, you know, close these loopholes. Um, and even as, as much as some people would seem as aggressive, but even abandoning assault weapons for citizens, these things that have widespread support, but that are, are not moved forward um, because of the political stage. And I think, you know, in closing, we should also be honest um, and upfront about where some of these barriers are coming from. Um, and a lot of the way that even frames how we have to talk about it carefully here has been by very, very successful lobbying efforts by, in large part, um, pro-gun lobbying entities, um, which is works often to, you know, uh, hide some of the real issues that we have for their own purposes. And it's not that they even... So I think we should be clear that... in organizations like the NRA have played major roles in stopping even reasonable funding towards things. And in large part, the Republican Party has played a real large role in making sure that even though there's bipartisan support at the citizen level, that a lot of these things don't go forward, in large part because of the lobbying efforts, mm -hmm. um, which is really kind of frustrating when you, when, when you look at the actual details as you've had here to see what some of the core core causes are. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, so the, the ban on assault weapons, um, I think there's two sides to that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that everyone could meet in the middle on and that people, again, in the Pew uh, research had said that they were willing to take it to, because currently it's 18 to buy an assault rifle, but 21 to buy a pistol. They were saying, <laughs> let's turn it to 21 then. Let's not ban all yeah, assault yeah. rifles, but let's... Let's raise the age limit because the last shooter, um, and I'm not going to name his name, mm -hmm. but one of the last shooters in Parkland um, was 19. Um, the shooter in the cab's case was 20. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these, but they had assault rifles. So, again, maybe revisit that. And it's like maybe we can get it pushed back to you know, eliminate all assault rifles, but we always hear that's the common sense. Like that seems to me it's a common sense kind of gun law where – yeah, and there's all kinds of things in between. I mean, banning. Uh, I'm a little bit of a of a, a libertarian in that sense of you know banning things, and an economist in that sense where banning things isn't always the right approach, right? We've had all these horrible consequences from trying to ban drugs, that just clearly aren't playing out well. So I too am quite skeptical of the of the full on banning approach. But to your point, there's all kinds of things in between. I mean, one that I mentioned that. Uh, that often doesn't get uh, that I've never heard really talked about in, in kind of mainstream news outlets. You can also just make these types of guns really expensive to own. Um, and it cuts down on the number of them and the ease in which you can stockpile them. Right. If you had a thousand dollar tax on every assault rifle, there's probably a lot less of them. Um, right. And that yeah. still allows people who really, really want them for collecting purposes, for shooting purposes to be able to get access to them but that they're not so cheap that it's easy for just anyone to get them. We actually had that in like the um, early 1930s. So there was actually a big push to like stop like gangster violence. Mm -hmm. And so they actually implemented a lot of taxes. But then in like the 80s when they were loosening things, that got repealed um, and helped fuel the wave of like people, everyone being able to afford it. You had, you had your yes, hand I like did. you wanted to say something. <laughs> Automatic weapons. I like. Sorry. Um, just to say what I did for the paper. When talking about bump stocks, um, that was something that was wide. Like even though I think people on both sides of the aisle are pretty uh, in favor of that, I think there are criticisms also on both sides of the aisle. And one was that it was kind of a proxy for just banning uh, automatic weapons. 
um, in the sense that it's basically what it does is make shooting, you know, continuous and rapid. Um, and so some people are like, okay, that's great. We ban that. But it's like, uh, you can still buy automatic weapons. And so there's a big part of it. But there are criticisms on the other side where it's like, it is banned in some states. And once the bans went into place, no one turned theirs in. Um, and also in the instances of um, like mass shootings, it's only really been used once. And so it's kind of like whether or not that that's a viable option, I would do it. I'd, I'd be like goodbye, but um, whether, you know, other states are interested in doing so is a, uh, yeah. definitely different. And, and I think one of the things that's frustrating too that, that Blake hit on with the, with the polling and, and being from a uh, community that uh, has a lot of guns, I mean, I was just on a, a deer hunting trip in November. Um, and so you know, I'm around people who are out using their guns for hunting purposes and it's the thing they look forward to for the whole year. It's me and my dad's annual trip. And I, you know, I enjoy, uh, very much enjoy that trip with him, um, every year. And even within those communities, which is why I hate to see this as politicized as it is, they'll agree that, yeah, universal background checks. Of course, that's something we should be doing. And of course we should close the loophole. And of course we should do background checks on private cells. But yeah, of course those are things we should do. They don't want their guns taken away, which is how a lot of it has been framed. Um, but they're like, yeah, people should be responsible gun owners. And when people aren't responsible gun owners, that makes us look bad as gun owners. So they're on board with a lot of these things. Which again, is why I think some of the role in which the lobbying organizations have played in this, when even gun owners who love hunting in the South, who have lots of guns, are comfortable with these types of tools and yet we can't get them passed that's about something else mm -hmm. that's about something else right and that's where this issue has uh, gotten ugly I think is because there are some real strong financial incentives and some real easy tools to play on fear-mongering that have kind of put a had made this that even the most basic conversations about types of things we should do um, are often felt like non-starters, which is really, um, I think, unforgivable. I mean, not unforgivable, but really egregious in the way in which policy is done um, because you know, often a complete misrepresentation of the facts or even of the opinions of the people within society. And the consequence of that is a lot of unnecessary deaths, um, which is just not okay. Um, well... I appreciate you all tackling this, as I said to you before we started. Um, I hope that the audience believes and can tell from the, we have a diverse audience group here. Um, that's one of the things I like about this group. Um, you have people, uh, men and women, former law enforcement, uh, people from different parts of the world, um, and you were able to come together by looking at the evidence and come up with some pretty, I think, uh, and the evidence shows some pretty common sense uh, reforms to deal with mass shootings and ones that are overwhelmingly uh, supported by the general public. And so I hope that uh, in continued effort to draw attention to these things, um, that the listener has learned about the basics of this issue, that it's not as, while it is complex and challenging, there are some real uh, clearly identified issues that contribute to mass shootings that have overwhelming majority of support of citizens to uh, to help mitigate the harm done by mass shootings. Um, and so I appreciate, as a group, you coming to a consensus, even when it was hard at times. And I think it, it gives your report and this conversation a lot of legitimacy, because none of us are sitting here kind of activists or lobbyists. You really did have to come to a consensus as a group of people who probably have a wide opinion, I would think, on guns and gun ownership. So kudos to you. Anything else that you want to leave the listener with that we haven't already highlighted? I think we've done a pretty good job. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. And um, I really look forward to sharing this episode. Mm -hmm.